Yummy. That's what I like to call limp toast. The reason why I couldn't toast the toast properly is because I had to come speak to you fuckers. Mm. I got some hard deadlines in this bitch, know what I'm saying? Oh, goodness. Okay, so, as I eat my toast, which has, uh, I can't believe it's not butter on it, and grape jelly. I'm going to give you a little rundown of the show. I heard that I can't believe it's not butter is actually secretly terrible for you. Um, but I sprayed it on anyway, because I'm lazy as fuck. I don't want to use classic butter, because you got to cut it, and it's a whole thing. So I just, just spray, spray, spray. That's how I eat, the laziest way possible. Um, but today we will be talking about, as you can see over my left shoulder here, Barack Obama, uh, there were some new revelations about his reaction to the 2016 election when Hillary Clinton lost. Goodness gracious, is that interesting. So we're going to talk about that. I also have data boy Nate Silver Continuing to make an ass of himself, but it's particularly hilarious because since his whole thing is, I only care about the data, I'm a numbers guy, you would think he would be cognizant of that. But not only is he not cognizant of that, he has become a parody, a caricature of somebody who's totally in the other direction, just giving his opinion. That's my job, Nate. My job is to give my opinion. Your job is to give us the numbers. But he doesn't anymore. He just tells us, "Um, yeah, I think uh, the establishment's right about pretty much everything. So I'm just going to say that and say it with scorn to make you think it's actually worth something, even though it's a bullshit opinion based on nothing. I have such a great example of it. Um, Then we have Facebook deciding that they're going to crack down on hate speech. Hmm. This toast is really good. Let's be serious. That's not toast anymore. Now it's just a piece of floppy bread. (laughs) 
But anyway, Facebook banned a handful of characters. I'm going to give you all of them in a second. I have a little uh, you know, CNN clip on it. And then we're going to discuss that. Kind of amazing that we, we're now heading down this path, and there appears to be just very little recognition of the principle that was just bought into by everybody. And that that's scary to me because we really do have a system now where it's like overlords who can determine, who are gatekeepers, who can determine if you have access to the public square. The censorship is not coming from the government anymore. The censorship is coming from Silicon Valley. I think my tooth chipped. (laughs) If I got this on video, that's fucking hilarious. All right. Feels like raggedy. Does that make sense? Mm. Anyway, I also have Rachel Maddow in the show. You don't want to miss that. I got 32 Joseph Biden stories. Handsy Uncle Joseph because he has... um, His old stuff is now being dug up by some wonderful people doing this thing called opposition research, which the left usually totally doesn't do. But as of right now, they started to do it again. The jelly matches my shirt. That's pretty cool. I just noticed that now. Um, And when you do oppo on Biden, apparently it's like, it's not even close. He's just as bad as your worst fears of him. Because he does have this this kind of, um, he has a sensibility to him, an aura to him of, ah, working guy, Joe. Yeah, Joe, looking out for the regular folks. Mm-mm-mm, bitch. Not even close. Wait until you see the clips I have for you. So, mm. one more bite and then we'll start. <laughs> mm. Okay. Here we go. Barack Obama. So the Daily Mail has a fascinating story about the 2016 election. This is, you know, detailing what was going on in the Obama White House at the time and what he thought of the way it was going to unfold. Take a look at this. Exclusive. Quote, this stings how Obama saw Trump's victory as a personal insult. Watch the movie Dr. Strange to distract himself from election results and blamed Hillary for the loss because of her scripted soulless campaign. That's a quote, scripted soulless campaign. Hot diggity damn. The new edition of Obama, The Call of History by New York Times Chief White House Correspondent Peter Baker lays bare Obama's fury over the election results. The book was originally released in July 2017, but has been updated with ex- extensive new reporting, and the, run th- and the run-through of Election Day is electrified. Obama arrogantly thought there was, quote, no way Americans would turn on him, even though Clinton was far from perfect. He likened himself to Michael Corleone in The Godfather, 
uh, and said he was handing power over to somebody who would destroy his legacy. Well, Trump is like uh, Fredo Corleone. <laughs> and Obama's like Michael. It's funny that he's actually saying that, um, you know, likening himself to a mob boss, which I guess in a weird way being president of the United States kind of is like that. Um, so in this piece, the details are absolutely fascinating. Obama called uh, Trump a con man straight out of Huckleberry Finn. He said this is the kind of guy who's existed throughout American history. He viewed him as a cartoon. Obama struggled with what um, the American people did on election night. And he said that they, quote, simply could not have decided to replace him with a buffoonish showman whose calling cards had been repeated bankruptcies, serial marriages, and racist dog whistles. As the weeks went by, Obama went through, quote, multiple emotional stages after Trump won, at times being philosophical, and at other times he flashed anger. He also showed a rare self-doubt and wondered if maybe this is what people want. Obama told one aide, quote, I've got the economy set up well for him. No facts, no consequences. They can just have a cartoon. In a stinging passage, here's what Baker writes. He says, to Obama and his team, however, the real blame lay squarely with Clinton. Quote, she was the one who could not translate his strong record and healthy economy into a winning message. She brought many of her troubles on herself. No one forced her to underestimate the danger in the, in the Midwest states of Wisconsin and Michigan. No one forced her to set up a private email server that would come back to haunt her. No one forced her to take hundreds of thousands of dollars from Goldman Sachs and other pillars of Wall Street for speeches. No one forced her to run a scripted, soulless campaign that tested 85 slogans before coming up with Stronger Together. <laughs> so that's all, you know, allegedly right out of Barack Obama's mouth. Again, I, I want to read through that one more time because I think it's that stinging. She was the only one who, she, excuse me, she was the one who could not translate his strong record and healthy economy into a winning message. She brought many of her troubles on herself. No one forced her to underestimate the danger in the Midwest states of Wisconsin and Michigan. No one forced her to set up a private email server that would come back to haunt her. No one forced her to take hundreds of thousands of dollars from Goldman Sachs and other pillars of Wall Street for speeches. No one forced her to run a scripted, soulless campaign that tested 85 slogans before coming up with Stronger Together. Okay. When I read this story, at first I was kind of conflicted as to how to feel it, but I actually just made up my mind as we were going back over it now. And my conclusion is, Obama's actually absolving too much from himself. So it's easy for me to come out here and just flat out agree with Obama's commentary here, because, yeah, it's true. I mean, everything he said is, is kind of spot on about how terrible Hillary Clinton is and how she's the main reason that she lost. Can't blame 84 other things. She's the main reason why she lost. However, Obama's got, uh, you know, a self-perception that does not fully match up to the reality of the situation. Now, don't get me wrong. His approval rating um, towards the end of his presidency and post-presidency is really not 
bad. He, he has a decent approval rating. But, 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 and this is a big but, <laughs> Hillary lost the entire Rust Belt. And it's not just because of Hillary. It's also because the Democratic administration, on the way out the door, was trying tooth and nail to get TPP implemented, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the next disastrous trade deal, which is like NAFTA on steroids. And you can't push for a trade deal like that when trade has ruined this region of the country and then somehow make the argument that, like, who, us, the Democrats? We're the pro-worker party, and we're looking out for you. You just open the door for Donald Trump to step into that void and pretend to be a populist and pretend to care about working people. And so what he did is he focused like a laser on the Rust Belt states, and he hammered away, spoke about how you know Bill Clinton signed NAFTA, Hillary Clinton supported NAFTA, Hillary Clinton supports all these outsourcing deals. She said 45 times that TPP is the gold standard. Obama and Biden were pushing for TPP as the election was going on. So it's interesting that he says to her, hey, she brought troubles on herself. No one forced her to underestimate the danger in the Midwest states of Wisconsin and Michigan. But here's the thing, Obama. Let's say you, you were running for a third term at the time, and you were campaigning in the Midwestern states. There's a good argument to be made that Trump still could have edged out a victory there because you can't simultaneously push for TPP and then go talk to these people as if you're fighting for them. So it's not like he bears more responsibility than he likes to admit. Now, having said that, he's right that Hillary Clinton is the main reason why she lost. But he's absolving himself, I think, of too much. So don't get me wrong. I think if Hillary sees this story, her gut reaction would be to totally blame Obama in the same way that she's blamed everything but herself for her loss. Um, And that would be too far. But he definitely is more to blame than he's letting on here. I mean, think about this. No one forced her to take hundreds of thousands of dollars from Goldman Sachs and other pillars of Wall Street for speeches. Dude, you raised a tremendous amount of money from Wall Street when you ran for president. So now you turn around and yell at her for doing the same thing. Well, you did it. (laughs) So maybe she thought, hey, I could possibly win by even when I do this, because that's what happened with you. And then not to mention, the second you got out of office, what what was the first article we saw about Obama when he left office? He went to give a speech to Wall Street banks and got paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. So this strikes me as a little bit like he thinks, He is unquestionably, his legacy is over the top, wonderful and beautiful, and that's why it should have been in a layup election for her. But dude, you weren't, you weren't FDR 2.0, man. You were Bill Clinton 2.0, which is better than, you know, an insane George W. Bush, neoconservative, swashbuckling, deregulating type presidency. But it ain't all that. And it certainly is vulnerable to a fake populist who can win and beat neoliberal, technocratic, wonky centrism. And that's what happened. So I think the thing that frustrated me most about this story is that he wants to absolve himself completely. And I don't think that that makes sense. Even the idea where he said, oh, it's my my healthy economy – 
you know, she couldn't successfully run on my healthy economy. Yeah, but your economy was not that healthy. Now, don't get me wrong. By the traditional metric that's used on, like, you know, right-wing Fox Business Network and CNBC, yeah, by those metrics, you're doing great. Corporate profits are through the roof. The stock market was bouncing back. Unemployment was lower. But th- that the same problem exists with Obama's economy and Trump's economy now, which is wages are stagnant. People are massively underemployed. They're loaded up to their eyeballs with medical debt and student debt and credit card debt. Um, you know, 40% of the country can't afford a $400 emergency. Income inequality is through the roof. So he's using the, a, ter- a, a terrible standard and a terrible metric to determine my economy's great. No, it really wasn't that great. Something like 90% of the gains since the recession had gone to the top 1%. And you think just because it says the low unemployment rate and the stock market is doing well, that that translates into a healthy economy and that it's easy for somebody to run your legacy? That's simply not true. It's just not true. You weren't the kind of radical that was necessary at the time. I mean, George W. Bush, you know, uh, two offensive wars and deregulation like crazy, tax cuts for the rich. It was time for a new FDR. It was time to end the wars. Obama did not end the wars. It was time to, you know, do a, a new New Deal and rebuild our crumbling infrastructure and you know, a massive jobs program. He did a half measure with the stimulus package and the Wall Street bailout, which was something he shouldn't have even done. So there's a little bit too much of absolving himself here. But it also is just absolutely hilarious that he nailed the tone of her campaign. It's, quote, soulless, scripted and soulless. You're damn right. And hilarious that he said they tested 85 slogans before coming up with stronger together which again totally true but dude your slogan was change that doesn't even mean anything like okay change there's no indication of the direction of the change it's just like change this broad thing of change that can be change in a right-wing direction change in a left-wing direction it just means change it doesn't mean like the idea that that's some sort of fucking high-minded thing that a brilliant philosopher king has come up with. No, that was silly too. But it's just that now, since it didn't work for Hillary, you're like, oh, it's stronger together was shitty. Well, maybe you should have, you know, made a little phone call beforehand and said, let's not go that vague, that broad, that silly. Except again, you weren't in a position to do that because your shit was changed. See, the thing about Obama is he was so likable as a campaigner and as a person that he made centrism appears somewhat cool. And actually, he had his moments of being leftist on the campaign trail. His message wasn't left across the board. He was never in favor of Medicare for All on the campaign trail. But in some ways, he campaigned pretty leftist, certainly more left than he, he governed. Um, but there were moments of just vague, silly nonsense. And now he's turning around and blaming Hillary for her vague, silly nonsense. And he, You dabbled in that as well. So I don't know. I do have mixed feelings about this. I think Obama's right in terms of how shitty her campaign was. But I also think he's absolving himself too much because if Obama was as good as he thinks he was, 
then anybody would have been able to, any Democrat would have been able to pick up and win afterwards. And that isn't the case. So he wasn't as transformative as he thinks he is. He was a he was a, an efficient status quo manager and an efficient technocrat. So he made some tweaks around the edges. You know, I did a long segment grading his presidency. I forget what I gave him, but I went through all of his policies. I gave him like a C or C plus or something like that. Um, and I think it's fair to give him some credit on some things, but he thinks he was like one of the best ever. And I set everything up nicely, and then Hillary blew it. Well, Hillary did blow it, but you weren't as wonderful as you think you were. And I honestly believe, and maybe this is why he said it hurts and it stings, I honestly believe Trump couldn't have gotten elected if Obama was as good as he thinks he was. And you'll notice something. We've spoken about this before, but why do you think it is that so many centrist Democrats, they love to only focus on the racial aspect of Trump and they love to yelp about Russia nonstop because those are the convenient scapegoats. If the problem is just that, God, all of Trump voters are racist, full stop. And ah, Vladimir Putin swung the election, full stop. If you really believe that, then what just happened? You totally absolved the centrist Democrats of doing anything wrong. You said, no, no, it's not our problem at all. We don't need to reform. We don't need to change. We don't need to go in a further left direction. We did everything exactly right. The problem is fucking Russians and the goddamn racists on the Trump side. And it's a convenient way to absolve yourself of all of it. So, anyway, um, Obama, who in public appears very, you know, put together and taking everything in stride behind closed doors, he was like, fuck, fuck, Hillary. Fuck. There you have it. Okay. Now, we'll go to Nate Silver. Nate Silver is a bitch. He's a bitch. <laughs> That's my little jingle, my little Nate Silver jingle. Okay, here we go. So Nate Silver fancies himself a, a data guy. This is why I've given him the nickname Data Boy. Um, but nowadays, the overwhelming majority of his tweets are, are just opinion. And they're like opinion while he pretends like they're more than that. And that is super frustrating. You would think these guys would learn a little bit of humility when they were totally convinced that Trump was going to lose the 2016 election, and then he didn't. You would think there'd be, like, you know, some grappling with that fact and maybe reeling it in a little bit with the opinion, especially since you, you know, you view yourself as the data guy. But no. But no, if anything, he's gotten worse. So let's take a look at his latest abomination of a hot take. He says, mini-thread. If you're someone on the left and you want to defeat Biden, a 76-year-old white guy, then maybe backing Sanders, a 77-year-old white guy, is not the way to do it. So in other words, identity politics, identity politics, identity politics, full stop. That's all there is. Well, here's an old white guy, and here's an old white guy. 
Nate, that disregards literally everything that's important and substantive. Literally everything. Everything. I mean, God damn it. We, Dick Cheney is an old white guy, and Noam Chomsky is an old white guy. Are we supposed to act like the fact that they're old white guys is even relevant? It's not even close to relevant. They're, no, they're, they're polar opposites in every single conceivable way. Every way. If you're on the left and you want to defeat Biden, a 76-year-old white guy, maybe backing Sanders, a 77-year-old white guy, is not the way to do it. Dude, this is the data guy, data boy over here. All right, I have more from him. Like it or not, identity, race, gender, age, is a major aspect of what people vote on. And you're probably not going to persuade many voters to back Bernie over Biden on the basis of electability or leadership since Biden was VP. Those are disadvantages for you, in fact. So you're really banking uh, on making up a lot of ground on Bernie being closer to the center of the Democratic electorate on policy, which is not clear he is. What? Or voters agreeing with his institutional critique of the Democratic Party, which most Democrats won't. It's early, and Biden's post-announcement polling uh, bounce will probably fade, but it's formidable enough that it may maybe ought to promote some reassessments of strategy. Bernie is limited in the number of arguments he can make versus Biden when another candidate of the left might not be. Bernie is limited in the number of arguments he can make versus Biden when other candidates on the left might not be. How on earth is he limited when, and we're going to get to this later today, in fact, there's a thousand videos of Biden throughout his career going back as far as you want and going forward as far as you want where he's just saying insane thing after insane thing, promoting insane policy position after insane policy position, praising Dick Cheney, saying he wants to bomb North Korea. I mean, the list goes on and on. I'd be here all day if I went through all of it. There could not be a starker contrast between a guy who's on video throughout his career being right about everything and warning everybody about everything and a guy who's been wrong about everything and looked for political convenience at all the times when it really mattered and he needed to show some spine and stand up for the right thing. Not only are you wrong, there cannot be a bigger contrast, Nate. It's not possible for there to be a bigger contrast. Also, when he says, well, it's not clear that Bernie's closer to the Democratic electorate than Biden is. You're the polls guy. You're the fucking polls guy, dude. Go to any poll on the actual issues, and you are proven wrong empirically, objectively, immediately. You name the policy, I'll show you the results, Medicare for all. What is it, over 80% of the American people, uh, excuse me, over 80% of the Democratic Party supports it now? Biden's fucking mealy-mouthed nonsense, expand Obamacare, public option, maybe. Medicare for all polls, way more popular than that. The shitty little centrist middle ground... Sometimes Obamacare doesn't even pull over 50%. Medicare for all kicks its ass. So Bernie is way closer on that issue. Free college, Bernie is way closer on that issue. You go down the canon of policy beliefs, legalizing marijuana. Did you know there was a time years ago when Pat Robertson said, hey, I think it's kind of crazy that we're locking people up for, you know, taking a couple of hits of marijuana and having a small amount of marijuana on them. Seems like a waste of resources and seems like you're ruining people's lives over not much. And Biden came out 
and disagree with Pat Robertson and said it's a gateway drug and we got to do what we got to do and we got to have these strong sentences and we got to lock them up for nonviolent drug offenses. He was to the right of fucking Pat Robertson on the issue of marijuana. Bernie's with 62% of the American people, way more, uh, a higher percentage of the Democratic Party. Nate, literally almost any issue, almost any issue you can name, bar maybe two or three, but there's at least a dozen issues where Bernie is obviously closer to the majority of the Democrats, not just the majority of Democrats, the majority of the American people. So for you to say it's not clear he is closer to the Democratic electorate on policy, I'm actually starting to think you're being dishonest. You're just flat out, like, it's not like, whoops, I, Nate Silver, have made a mistake here. It's, I am, I am purposefully obfuscating for the sake of trying to put Bernie down. That's what it appears like, because you're the data guy, and you don't know where the American people stand on all of these basic policies. You don't know where the Democratic Party stands, the Democratic base, the actual voters, on all of these policies. I mean, it's inconceivable. It's totally inconceivable. And then he says, like, well, most voters are not going uh, to agree with his critique of the institutional Democratic Party. What planet does Nate Silver live on where, like, you know, people just love the Democratic Party and love the Republican Party and have no problem with the institutions themselves? Hey, dude, you do know Congress's approval rating is, like, in the teens, right? You want to know why? Because they're the swamp. They're the establishment. They're representing the business, the business interests, the status quo. They're representing corporations and the rich. This idea of like, well, you know, critiquing the Democratic Party is not going to fly even in a, in a Democratic primary. What's the number? I think it's over 50% of the American people that feel like totally disenfranchised by the system and hate both parties. So you think an anti-establishment message can't work? Donald Trump got the Republican nomination bashing the Republican Party nonstop. It's a total myth. You want to talk about data? There is zero data to back up Nate's claim. They're not going to agree with this institutional critique of the Democratic Party. Nate, that's you in your own little bubble in Washington, D.C. or New York, where you're like surrounded by people who love the Democratic Party. Rah, rah, Nancy Pelosi, yay! Her approval rating is in the fucking 20s, bro. The rest of the country does not reflect your establishment elitist sensibilities. He's, uh, uh, he's so massively out of touch. It is honestly stupid. I don't know if he's stupid and, or ignorant or dishonest. But, uh, you know, it's, at this point, it really does look like he's being dishonest. And then he went on to say, I don't have the, quote, uh, the tweet here ready for you, but he went on to say, because so everybody in his replies was like, Policy is what matters. What are you saying? What are you saying, just viewing it from an identity level? Um, everybody said, or he said, it's elitist to care about policy. It's elitist to argue that policy comes front and center. That is literally the opposite of elitist. If you're pushing for raising the minimum wage, do you have any idea how many people that helps? Do you have any idea? If you're arguing for Medicare for all, what you're saying is there are 44 million people who are uninsured right now. I want them all covered, and I want them to be, to be able to get quality health care, and I want to cut everybody's uh, costs down. 
when you argue on policy, hey, I want to end the wars, you're arguing to save lives, the lives of U.S. soldiers, the lives of innocent civilians overseas. He's arguing policy is elitist. No, what you're saying is elitist, as if people you know, can afford to sit around and go, I don't know, there's an old white man and there's an old white man. They're all the same. Maybe the way to beat that old white guy is not with another old white guy. But Joe Biden, and let's take Kamala Harris, she's a, a person of color and a woman, they are way more aligned ideologically than Bernie and, and Biden. So there's a much starker contrast between Bernie and Biden than Kamala and Biden. Why are you obfuscating on this? Again, he doesn't care about the data, man. He really doesn't care about the data. And this is where he fucked up in 2016, too, where he kept assuming that the party, the party always wins out. And that's why he kept saying it's not going to be Trump. There were a thousand articles on 538. It's not going to be Trump. It's not going to be Trump. It's not going to be Trump. The tortured logic, by the way, was always like, Sure, he's leading by like 15 points over the closest competitor. However, he seems to top out at like 35% support. 35% is not a majority of the, the Republican voting base. So we think the party is ultimately going to win out and they're going to get their establishment candidate. And he was just dead wrong. Now he's making the same arguments about Bernie too. I responded to one of uh, the things he said the other day because it was literally the same argument. It was sure, Bernie's the front runner in most polls, but he's not getting over 50%. So... There, I, I mean, there's not enough support there in the Democratic base, so he's not really uh, the front runner. But he's literally he's leading. That's the front runner by definition. But it's not over 50%. You'd say the same shit against Trump, and Trump ended up winning. He's such a hack. And I just noticed, like, however many minutes, over 10 minutes into this story, I still have Obama over my shoulder. <laughs> Supposed to be data boy. There you go. God damn it, Nate. Listen, here's my advice to everybody. Yes, 538, when they just put their polling out there and they do an amalgamation of all the polling, that stuff is fine. Go look at it, you know, go check out where the race stands. Now, admittedly, in some polls, they just way oversample older voters. Those are the outlier polls where Biden's leading by like a zillion points, even over Bernie. Um, but 538 is okay for the polls. If you're going to 538 for the analysis of Nate Silver, Man, you're fucking up, because this speaks for itself. I didn't even need to come out here and critique this, because it was obvious how ridiculous he was being. When he argues that it's not clear Bernie is more in agreement on policy with the Democratic voters, he has not even, he doesn't even have a bullshit case to make, never mind an accurate one. He doesn't even have a way to bullshit that, which is why he doesn't even try, by the way. So... And when he focuses purely on identity, he's a joke at this point, man. He's a joke, and it is really sad to see. There was a time when he was right about every prediction he made because he just stuck by the polling. Now it's, I'm just going to give you my establishment spin on things. And he has no clue how out of touch he is. Now let's go to Facebook, and I'm going to show you. Um, I'm going to show you what they did. 
I do have a video here from CNN, and while the CNN video is playing, I will be able to, uh, you know, have some more bites of my now soggy-ass toast. So Facebook decided they were going to crack down on hate speech, so they axed some prominent users from their platform. Take a look at the CNN report on this. several high-profile names from its platforms, among them Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, as well as his media outlet InfoWars. They're being banned for spreading, quote, dangerous ideology. CNN Business senior media reporter Oliver Darcy joins me now. So what more do we know about this ban and, and who else is included? Yeah, this is a very strict action from Facebook, Erica. Basically, they deem these individuals to be dangerous, is what Facebook is saying. Those individuals include Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, who has a history of anti-Semitic remarks, um, people like right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, and then also some right-wing media personalities who are pretty popular online, people like Milo Yiannopoulos, Laura Loomer, Paul Joseph Watson, those people are banned, as well as a uh, failed congressional candidate, Paul Nalen, who had made a number of anti-Semitic remarks. Um, Facebook has given us a statement, and they do say in the statement, I'll read part of it to you right now, um, they say that we've always banned individuals or organizations that promote or engage in violence and hate, regardless of ideology. The process for evaluating potential violators is extensive, and it is what led us to our decision to remove these accounts today. Um, Facebook told me that the uh, process they use is to uh, engage a number of factors. Uh, have they promoted uh, hate speech on Facebook? Have they been banned for violating the rules in the past? Have they self-described themselves as part of a hate movement or hate ideology? Those are the factors that Facebook was weighing, and you know they're taking this really strict action uh, moments ago. And banning from Facebook and Instagram, correct? Yes, Facebook obviously owns Instagram, and so someone like Alex Jones had been banned from Facebook a while back, last year in the summer, but he was still having a presence on Instagram, and that had drawn a lot of scrutiny from people who were saying, hey, you know, you guys banned him from one of your platforms, why are you allowing him to have a presence on Instagram? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, now Facebook is going to be banning uh, Alex Jones and InfoWars from not only their main platform, Facebook, but also from Instagram. Um, I checked in also to see if these people would be banned from WhatsApp, which is also owned by Facebook, mm -hmm. um, and a spokesperson cannot say immediately because it's, I guess, unclear whether some of these people have uh, WhatsApp accounts, according to the spokesperson. All right, but well, we know you'll continue to check on it. Oliver Darcy, good to see you. Thank you. So there's a story that we're doing um, later today, and that story is about how Rachel Maddow went on her show, and she argued, oh my goodness, Trump is doing Putin's bidding on the issue of Venezuela, and good old John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, how can they, you know, work with Trump, this guy Trump, in good faith? knowing that Trump is a puppet of Vladimir Putin, and all Mike Pompeo and, and John Bolton are trying to do is bring a good old-fashioned freedom and democracy to Venezuela. So she framed a story as Trump is Putin's puppet because he's not hawkish enough on Venezuela, and isn't uh, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, aren't they both so reasonable and so intelligent and so principled, regardless of what you think of them in the past, uh, they're obviously correct, and we need to do war in Venezuela and topple that government 
and oh my God, Trump is so bad and so wrong, and he's a, a puppet of Putin, because to this point, Trump has only leveled crippling sanctions on Venezuela, and Trump has only backed a coup from within the country. He has not done actual military strikes and has not done an actual invasion of Venezuela. And the framing of the segment is, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be the right thing to do? There were instances of, again, to bring up Russiagate, this is just one example, but I'll give you many, where all of mainstream media melted down for three days straight because they said Paul Manafort repeatedly met with Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, where they were, you know, plotting their their uh, evil election meddling uh, in the U.S. Now, that turned out to be totally factually untrue. We know because Mueller came out at the time and said this is untrue, and there was not a mention of that in the report. Why? Because it didn't happen. I think The Guardian originally reported it. They haven't taken it down. They haven't corrected themselves or anything. Should all the media outlets that breathlessly uh, ran with that for, for you know, three days straight, when they were totally factually wrong, should they have their stuff pulled? Should Maddow have her stuff pulled for doing conspiracy mongering and doing the conspiracy mongering for the ends of let's go to war in Venezuela? Should she have her stuff pulled from Facebook? All right, an even clearer example, the Iraq war. At the time, all of mainstream media was dead wrong. They helped push for us to go to war based on lies. What they would do is they would get people, you know, their sources in the Pentagon, in the CIA, and they would say, well, according to my source, uh, Saddam Hussein has yellow cake and he's, you know, he's got weapons of mass destruction. And and the implication was, of course, you're going to use it on us. So we got to go. We got to go. We got to go now. We got to go now. We got to go now. They lied, and so there was a connection between Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. There was not. So the case that was made from, from elements in our government that was fed to the media, and then the media ran with it, you know, the famous, I think it was Judith Miller in the New York Times, you know, quoting Dick Cheney, I think it was, and Cheney just basically making it up. Um, and, and all this fear-mongering about Saddam, and then New York Times ran with it as if it was factual. There was a giant conspiracy to actively push us into an illegal offensive war that resulted in $7 trillion wasted, at least 200,000 civilians killed, and thousands of U.S. civilians killed. Uh, Excuse me, thousands of U.S. soldiers killed. Should all the mainstream media outlets get their, their stuff pulled as a result of that? Because... You want to talk about conspiracy, that was conspiracy, that was a conspiracy theory through and through. And then it was also a conspiracy theory that was used towards pushing an illegal offensive war that resulted in the deaths of countless people. I mean, again, if you're going to talk about, well, we got to pull people down because this is, this is dangerous. It's dangerous to have people like Alex Jones up there talking and Milo Yiannopoulos and Louis Farrakhan and Paul Joseph Watson is another one that they pulled, which is particularly weird because Paul Joseph Watson was the guy who worked at InfoWars, worked at InfoWars. He was like an affiliate with InfoWars. And 
in the Alex Jones deposition, I don't know if you guys saw it. I watched it. The whole thing is on YouTube, and it's amazing. But they, the, the person doing the deposition keeps telling Alex Jones, like, and your colleague, Paul Joseph Watson, kept telling you, don't shut up about Sandy Hook. You're wrong about Sandy Hook. It's not a conspiracy. Stop bringing it up. Stop bringing it up. And they kept mentioning to Alex Jones, like, when your colleague was telling you this, what were you thinking? So here's a guy who, and he's dabbled in 9-11 conspiracy stuff, among other things. So there, I think there's a solid argument that he's, you know, far, far right guy. But pulling him down? For what? Because he, he was affiliated with Alex Jones? Or is the 9-11 conspiracy stuff enough to pull somebody down? I mean, that's a whole fucking genre on YouTube and, and online. Should all of that stuff get pulled down? Okay, so if all of that stuff gets pulled down, if you say yes to that, well, what about, what about the conspiracy theories regarding JFK? Because over 50% of the country literally thinks that it wasn't, the official story is not correct. That's what they say. Now, I don't know. I have no idea. I haven't looked at that in depth, so I can't give you, like, a solid opinion on that. But here's what I do know. You should be allowed to talk about it. Even if you're, even if you're fucking factually dead wrong and your conspiracy is the weirdest of all the conspiracies, you should be allowed to talk about that. You should. You just should. So if you start pulling out, well, he did 9-11 truth, well, okay, then should the JFK truthers get their shit pulled down? Because that's another genre in and of itself. So you see the problem here once you open the door, and then there's the flip side of the equation, which is, think about this. Remember when, uh, you know, we learned through WikiLeaks what happened with the DNC in the 2016 election where, I mean, the, the details, the specifics of how that election was rigged for Hillary. I mean, literally, the DNC was acting as an arm of the Clinton campaign. Literally. Hillary had last say on the fucking... Um, PR releases from the DNC. They had a fundraising agreement between the two of them. We also learned, of course, that you know Donna Brazil was slipping Hillary questions before the debates with Bernie. Um, there were just there was just endless detail about the ways in which everything was biased against Bernie Sanders. Also, we learned Hillary Clinton was given these speeches uh, talking about how there's an intolerable bigotry against the rich in the United States of America. And I think we need totally free and open trade borders like NAFTA on steroids, basically. Um, and I think, you know, you should have public positions and private positions if you're a politician. So in other words, tell your donors one thing and do that, but tell the public something else. So we learned all of this stuff, and all this stuff was super important. But mainstream media avoided this stuff like the plague. And they even went as far as to muddy the waters and pretend like, no, 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 these leaks aren't even genuine. Because there was an attempt afterwards, like, okay, muddy the waters by doing a fake release of WikiLeaks stuff and pretending that, see, WikiLeaks got something wrong, therefore you can't trust any of the stuff they just released. Meanwhile, they were right about all the stuff they released. So think about it. If Facebook is just, you know, axing people now for flimsy reasons, for no reason, in some cases for what many would argue are good reasons, because you do have genuinely dangerous actors in the case of, like, Alex Jones and fucking uh, Louis Farrakhan, but what happens when a show like mine or a show like Jimmy Dore's, when we give you all the information and detail on the next thing where maybe the DNC tries to rig it against Bernie, or we learn more from WikiLeaks about a war or something like that, and we come out here and tell you the truth about that? 
what happens? It's super easy for them to say, oh, now Kyle's a conspiracy theorist. Jimmy Dore's a conspiracy theorist. We got to take him down. Bro, what, what do you mean? They were, I mean, they, they ran with this stuff that was just leaked, and the stuff that was leaked was taken in an illegal manner. That's the, that's the next thing they're going to do is, well, hey, what do you mean? Chelsea Manning broke the law when she gave all the information about our soldiers killing civilians and then laughing about it. She gave that information to WikiLeaks, and WikiLeaks ran with it. Well, it was illegal what Chelsea Manning did. She went to prison over it. So you can't report on that. You can't talk about that. So Facebook can conceivably say, well, we're just going to pull everybody who's talking about what's in the next WikiLeaks stuff. I mean, listen, this is the slipperiest, slippery slope of all time. How about when I come out here and I always tell you guys, the U.S. is literally arming and backing jihadists. That's not opinion. That's a fact. It was a strategy from the fucking 1980s where we were against the Soviet Union so much and they were in a war in Afghanistan, so we armed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which later became the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. We armed them, we propped them up, and we wanted to see them fight the Soviets. We aligned ourselves with the devil, basically, and then eventually the chickens came home to roost and came back and bit us in the ass. But we're still doing it today. We're, doing, we're arming, giving them a, over $100 billion weapons deal to the Saudi government as they're doing a genocide in Yemen. We're uh, backing jihadist rebels in Syria. So when I come out here and I give you the specifics of how we're backing the jihadist rebels in Syria, al-Nusra, when I give you the specifics on how Saudi Arabia is doing a genocide with our weapons in Yemen, it is so easy for Facebook, if they wanted to, to say, that sounds a little conspiratorial. You're arguing the U.S. is in bed with jihadists? I think you're a conspiracy theorist. Gone. Axe. And if, if your response to this is, well, Kyle, but come on, you're talking theory here. This hasn't actually happened yet. Well, I'll tell you something that's already happened. Facebook has repeatedly axed pro-Palestine groups. Why? It's at the behest of the Israeli government. The Israeli government says, hey, man, if you want to function here, you're going to have to block these uh, or, or axe or censor these pro-Palestine groups. So they did it. So in other words, there is no objective arbiter at Facebook who's just going to determine in a totally emotionless and, and dispassionate way, who should and shouldn't be axed. What's going to happen is the people at the top are going to have their own biases and their own predilections, and they're going to be in bed with their own interests. And then you're going to get actions that reflect the worldview of the people who are at the top of Facebook. Why should Silicon Valley oligarchs be able to willy-nilly ax anybody and take away their free speech? Now, I know everybody says this isn't literally a free speech issue, and it's correct. It's not legally a free speech issue, but it's for damn sure the principle of freedom of speech, 100%. And there's a solid argument that today the new public square is social media. It's Twitter. It's Facebook. So if that's the new public square, why shouldn't we have basically the First Amendment be expanded to apply to that? And why shouldn't we have the default position be free speech? That doesn't mean you could do direct threats of violence. If you do direct threats of violence, I have no sympathy for you, and they can take action against you. That doesn't mean you could do a clear-cut case of libel or slander. If you do libel or slander, that's also against the law, and there should be a process. It should be open. It should be transparent. But if you're guilty, you're guilty, and, and you're gone. I'm, you know, even if you're a free speech absolutist, there are some tiny rules. You know, um, So... But the default should be freedom of speech. And right now we have a situation where it's shadowy Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires who get to determine who gets to talk and who doesn't get to talk. If you're comfortable with that, 
you have bought into a principle that will destroy you. That's what's going to happen. You will have bought into a principle that will destroy you. CNN has already done articles calling Jimmy Dore a conspiracy theorist. I think it was specifically over the issue of Syria. They called him a conspiracy theorist because he questioned the evidence in the gas attacks from Assad. Now, whether or not Jimmy's right about that, I don't even care because the issue here is, should he be allowed to ask that question? Honestly, I'll go further. Should he be allowed to even maybe talk about it and get it wrong without being fucking censored and, and getting the internet death penalty and kicked off line? The answer is yes, he should be able to do that, in my opinion. Because that's the, that's the default position. The default position should be let everybody talk, freedom of speech, and then only in very fringe rare cases where there's an open and clear process can you, you say, this person we can get rid of for reasons X, Y, and Z. But certainly the path we're going down now is incredibly scary. And if you're on the left and you're cheering this, I'm warning you. You know who they're coming for next, right? They're coming for commie groups, Marxist groups. They're coming for, you know, there's a group of, of socialist gun owners. It's like gun enthusiasts who are socialists. They'll eventually come for you. They're coming for new Black Panthers and, you know, identitarian movements on the left. This is what happens. Historically, censorship is always used against more marginalized communities. Now, right now is step one, where it's the thing where almost nobody will react and say they're wrong, because who the fuck likes Alex Jones? Who likes Alex Jones? Who likes fucking Louis Farrakhan or Milo Yiannopoulos or Laura Loomer? Like, who likes these people? Nobody likes these people. Or at least no serious people like these people. So it's easy to take a case where everybody goes, yes, I hate that guy, so I agree with it. But they just got you, because you just bought into the principle. And now that door's open, and that's the slipperiest, slippery slope of all time. And I'm telling you, here's what's going to end up happening. Only establishment outlets will get free speech, and they'll be allowed to get everything wrong, and they'll be allowed to do their own conspiracy theories, and there will be no consequences for them, and all the independent new media outlets and all the left voices, truly left voices, they will be the ones, along with the far right, to get axed. So don't say I didn't warn you. And again, if you buy into this, well, just ask yourself the question. If all this technology was around during the lead-up to the Iraq war, where they all conspiracy-mongered and got it dead wrong, and it resulted in a war with people dying, should they all have been pulled as a result of that? Should every mainstream media outlet that cheerleaded this and got everything dead wrong and got us into war, built the case for war, built the you know, built the public sentiment for war, should they all have been pulled at the time? And if you answer no to that, well, then maybe, um, you know, you're now beginning to understand why this whole principle of letting them exit whenever they want, however they want, based on whatever they want, it's not a good idea. So I would say it has begun, but it has begun a while ago, and now it's just the next logical step. And they'll keep going. It'll be Facebook, it'll be Twitter, it'll be YouTube. And um, the future is looking very censorious, regardless of what you think of this batch of censored folks.
All right, now let's go to that Rachel Maddow clip. So Rachel Maddow is uh, pretty mad that Trump isn't being more hawkish on the issue of Venezuela. Um, I mean, really, this is only exactly what I've been warning you about when it comes to Russiagate and the dynamic of people who are nominally on the left now resisting Trump from the right. That's a giant problem. They walked right into the trap because they're vapid and they don't care about actual policy. Watch this. This is disturbing. Um, make clear today, after this phone call, that even though the whole rest of his own administration spent all week saying that Russia was interfering in Venezuela and propping up the Venezuelan dictator there, uh, turns out President Trump now says Putin isn't doing that at all because Putin told him so. You see the headline in Bloomberg News today, Trump says Putin not involved in Venezuela despite U.S. claims. So Putin says he's not doing it, and so President Trump believes it. And so, hey, John Bolton, hey, Mike Pompeo, are you guys enjoying your jobs right now? You each thought your job this week was to name and shame and threaten and counter Russian government involvement in Venezuela while saber-rattling about every, how everybody else better get out of the way because the U.S. is really mad about it. Guys, turns out your actual job is figuring out how and why you work for a president who says whatever Vladimir Putin tells him. I mean, I mean just to be clear here, I mean, how do you come to work anymore if you're John Bolton? Right? Regardless of what you thought about John Bolton before this, of his whole career and his track record, I mean, just think of John Bolton as a human being. This is what John Bolton, human being, thought his job was this week. Like, again, whether, or not, whether you like what he's saying here or not, this is what they've had him out there saying. The Trump administration has also made the claim that Russia is very much involved in propping up the Maduro regime. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo told my colleague Wolf Blitzer yesterday that there was a plane waiting to take Maduro to Cuba, but the Russians talked him out of it. What exactly is the Russian role here? Look, the Russians uh, like nothing better than putting a thumb in our eye. They're using the Cubans as surrogates. Uh, they'd love to get effective control of a country in this hemisphere. We've made it clear to the Russians in a lot of conversations at a lot of different levels, uh, some of which are going to continue today, why we think this behavior is unacceptable to us. Yeah, you thought that was your job. But it turns out uh, not at all, not after Vladimir Putin gets done with President Trump today. He is... Uh not looking at all to get involved in Venezuela, other than he'd like to see something positive happen for Venezuela. Putin doing anything in Venezuela? Who said Putin's doing anything bad in Venezuela? Who have you been listening to? I'm with him. He says he's not. I mean, John Bolton, God bless you. Good luck delicately and carefully shaving around that impressive mustache when you have to look at yourself in the mirror in coming days, Mr. National Security Advisor. I mean, this is who you're working for. You thought your job was to push Russia back because of what they're doing in Venezuela. The president spent an hour on the phone with Vladimir Putin today. Putin told him he's not in Venezuela. So now the new position of the U.S. government is that Putin is not in Venezuela. So Rachel Maddow is discussing Venezuela. And she's nominally on the left. She thinks of herself on the left. And she doesn't even mention that all of our policies towards Venezuela right now are insanely hawkish. We are, you know, 
sanctioning them out the wazoo and doing an embargo on them and um, um, applying maximum political pressure. Furthermore, we are um, literally backing a regime change coup that's happening in the country right now and trying to rally the world to do the exact same, to recognize Gallardo as president and oust Maduro quite literally. And instead of talking about what's actually happening in Venezuela, the facts on the ground, what the U.S. policy is towards Venezuela, she's harping away on a comment made by the president. Would you like to talk about how our policy contradicts his commentary? Would you like to talk about that? No, you don't want to because you don't care about the policy. You just want to play gotcha with Trump. So when Trump goes out there and says, uh, I don't know, Putin's not involved in Venezuela, that's what he tells me. Let me ask you a question. What's Occam's razor here? The reason he's saying that is because he's a Manchurian candidate of Russia, even though he's doing the exact opposite of the policy that they want. Or is it most likely that he's a fucking idiot and he doesn't know anything and he's shooting from the hip and you're seeing him do the same thing he's done in meetings with everybody else? He had one meeting with big pharma lobbyists. On the campaign trail, he ripped big pharma and said, we're going to lower drug prices. It's going to be tremendous. It's going to be unbelievable. Believe me. One meeting with uh, pharma lobbyists and he goes, yeah, we're not, uh, we're, uh, we think that uh, the pharma companies have been treated very unfairly by Medicare and Medicaid. So what's more likely? What's more likely, Rachel? He's a Manchurian candidate who somehow manages to be doing the opposite policy of what they want. Or he's just an idiot shooting from the hip and he's, uh, I don't know, uh, but Putin told me he's not involved in Venezuela, so it's tremendous. He's not involved there. It's unbelievable. You know what the answer is. You know what's most likely. You know what Occam's razor is. And look at, see, this is, this is what I mean, resisting from the right. Look at her framing of that conversation. What did she say? She's making it seem like, oh, poor John Bolton. Poor John Bolton and poor Mike Pompeo. They're the serious people in the room because they want to stand up to Russia and Venezuela. So in other words, being more hawkish is good in Venezuela. It's positive in Venezuela. That's the right thing to do, to stand up to Russia by trying to force regime change and get rid of Maduro, who's their ally. And she thinks she's on the left. And this is her argument. Like, what do you mean? Of course, we sh- yeah, we should be backing another regime change coup. Absolutely. What do you mean? And then, by the way, Trump is carrying out those policies that are massively hawkish. And basically her reaction is not, not hawkish enough. Because you make comments that indicate the opposite. So you're not hawkish enough. Do you see the problem here? The only way in Rachel Maddow's mind that Donald Trump can prove he's not a puppet of Vladimir Putin is to literally go bomb Maduro right this second and militarily invade. And then I guarantee you this, even if Donald Trump did that, and he might, we're this close to that, by the way, this close, and that's what we should be resisting. But even if Donald Trump did that, I guarantee you, Rachel Maddow would go out on her show and find a way to spin it as if, no, 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 militarily invading Venezuela, trying to topple Maduro quite literally with the U.S. military, that's somehow doing Putin's bidding. How do I know? Because she's done this with every other issue. It does, whatever Trump does, it's spun as puppet of Vladimir Putin. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it's spun as if, see, this proves he's a puppet of Vladimir Putin. Oh, he armed the Ukrainian rebels who are literally fighting Russia right this second? Something so hawkish, Obama was like, whoa, I can't do that. That's a major escalation. 
Trump did it, but still, uh, uh, Putin likes that. Pulling out of the fucking nuclear trade agreement? Uh, yeah, Putin uh, likes that, even though he literally doesn't. Pulling out of the Iran deal? Uh, yeah, Putin likes that, even though he doesn't. Putting our uh, warships in the Black Sea? Putin likes that, even though he doesn't. Um, doing a NATO buildup on Russia's border? Yeah, Putin likes that, even though he doesn't. Pressuring Germany's Angela Merkel to get out of an oil deal with Russia and have one with the U.S. instead, therefore massively damaging the Russian economy? Yeah, Putin likes that, even though he doesn't. So do you see the problem now? Rachel Maddow is acting like Mike Pompeo was, uh, excuse me, um, John Bolton is the adult in the room. The dude is an architect of the Iraq war. He's a fucking war criminal, quite literally. He's trying to do regime change now in Venezuela. And instead of Rachel Maddow opposing regime change, which is happening right in front of our fucking eyes, like a real lefty would, a real lefty would be screaming, stay out of Venezuela, hands off Venezuela, what are you doing? That's got nothing to do with us. We're violating international law. We have no right to just go in there and topple that government. Are you fucking kidding me? You want to talk about election meddling? Instead of fighting against um, regime change, what's she doing? Arguing that John Bolton has it nailed because he's more hawkish against Russia than Trump's fucking rhetoric is, even though Trump's policies are the opposite of his rhetoric, acting like, yo, I believe Putin, sure, he's not Venezuela. Well, he's literally fighting them there right now and uh, combating their influence by being more hawkish and by trying to get Gallardo in there. So I don't care what he says. Look at his policy and what he does. He's doing, in my opinion, the wrong thing. But then that's the, so let's say I was president now. Here's the gross twist on the end of it. Let's say I'm president and I'd, I decide, yeah, hands off Venezuela. We're not, we're going to lift the sanctions. We're going to get rid of the embargo. We're going to, you know, it's just not our business. Venezuela's not our business. We're not going to violate international law and try to fucking do regime change. It's got nothing to do with us. If I were to do that, what would Rachel Maddow say? Puppet of Vladimir Putin. See? Kyle's a puppet of Vladimir Putin because he doesn't want to do more regime change war. Do you finally fucking see the problem with this, guys? Do you finally see the problem with Russiagate here and the hysteria and what it's brought about? The left should be focused on no more regime change war, but instead, Rachel Maddow is singing the praising of psychopathic, bloodthirsty, lunatic war criminal John Bolton and pretending he's the adult in the room because he's more hawkish on Venezuela than Donald Trump is. And in reality, he's not even more hawkish on Venezuela. It's just that Trump's rhetoric is all over the place because he's an idiot and he doesn't know anything. So as he's doing regime change, he's like, oh, yeah, uh, sure, Putin, well, whatever. Yeah, he's got it. Um, he's not involved there, I'm sure. So that, like, the people who are only focusing on that comment and ignoring the policy, they're either dishonest or they're really stupid. Because that's, you're, you talk about missing the forest through the trees. If you can't see the policies, the opposite of what Trump just said, and you can't see that that's the problem, that you should be resisting regime change on Venezuela. If you can't see that that's the problem, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. No, John Bolton is not like the adult in the room. He's the worst in the room. He's a fucking war criminal. He's trying to do more regime change. And you, Rachel Maddow, are supporting it because it's nominally anti-Russia to do another regime change coup. All right, Joe Biden, here we go. 
So Joe Biden says he uh, likes war criminal former Vice President Dick Cheney. Um, Emma Vigland of Rebel Headquarters resurfaced this clip. I think it's originally from 2015. Take a look. First of all, I actually like Dick Cheney for real. I, I get on with him. I think he's a decent man. I went to see him after we were elected, and I went to see him at the residence, uh, and he and his wife were extremely gracious to Jill and to me. It probably sounds like I'm making this up when I say I learned from, but I spoke to this man repeatedly about this job. But he was extremely helpful and gracious about the office and the legal parameters of the office. The legal parameters of the office. He might be, in U.S. history, he might be the single worst vice president in terms of violating the law. Why do I say that? He, he's the one who pushed for torture. And then he's the one who argued that it was perfectly legal by going to the Justice Department, getting some low-level staffer to write him a memo that says, oh, yeah, this is cool. And then he took the memo and he went out there to, to the world and he was like, Justice Department says torture is totally legal because, look, oh, it's enhanced interrogation. It's not even torture, y'all. Isn't that crazy? It's like we're not even really torturing, even though we literally took our methods from communist Chinese manifestos on how to torture. But Justice Department says it's perfectly legal, bro. It's enhanced interrogation, bro. That's all it is, bro. He said Dick Cheney helped him with the legal parameters of the office. Well, that explains a lot <laughs> with all your extrajudicial you know, drone strike killings and whatnot. You're um, taking two wars and making it seven interventions total because you started drone striking in a variety uh, of more places. I mean, Dick Cheney, this is a guy who pushed for the torture, argued the torture was legal, to this day defends the torture, even though we have the Senate torture report and we learned there was, um, there was anal feeding torture which is just anal rape. They shoved a tube up their asses and pumped liquid food up there. What? They did mock burials. They did uh, waterboarding, of course. They did sleep deprivation. They had a litany of just horrendous torture methods, and Dick Cheney to this day still defends it. and said it's perfectly legal. And also, by the way, just so you know, because I think this is important, and people really, there's a, like a whoa moment when they learn this, it's not even like all the people who were tortured were like some sort of al-Qaeda operatives or something. No. In fact, the overwhelming majority of them were totally innocent. Totally innocent. And what happened was the, the uh, Bush-Cheney government reached out to warlords in Pakistan and Afghanistan and told them, you've got to send us like nine uh, al-Qaeda people. And they, those guys just rounded up their political enemies and shipped them to the U.S. And then we sent them to Guantanamo, some were in Abu Ghraib. And... We just, we tortured them. So people totally innocent, didn't do anything wrong. One of them was literally a German citizen. And when Germany found out that we tortured them, they were like, what the fuck are you doing? What are you doing? And we had to release them. It's just, see, this is why you have due process, by the way. Number one, torture is illegal, and it should be. But also, this is why you have due process. Because the government doesn't always just get it right. That you're going to take away somebody's life and liberty and just act like, well, what do you mean? We could do this because we were attacked. Yeah, but how do you know that this person was involved? How do you know that they did it? How, how do you know any of that stuff? This is why you have courtrooms and you have due process to ascertain the truth. 
Did we get it right? Did we not get it right? Can we keep them locked up? Do we have to let them go? They just skipped all that. Totally ignored the Constitution, totally ignored international law, totally ignored U.S. law. I mean, this is crazy. This is ignoring the fucking Magna Carta is what they're ignoring here. So that's what uh, Cheney did. Of course, he pushed for the Iraq War, which was an illegal offensive war that killed minimum 200,000 civilians, wasted $7 trillion also. And this is the guy who he likes. Now, his reasoning is very interesting. What's his reasoning? Well, he was nice to me. He was nice to me and Jill. Very gracious with his time and helped me out a little bit. And... These, these, Joe Biden is the exact kind of person who I don't want as president. Why? Because he thinks, like, what? These personal relationships override the, the bulk of somebody's career? I mean, Dick Cheney is a career criminal. Make no mistake about it. That's what he is. He's a career criminal. He's a war criminal. He should be in the Hague right now. But because he was nice to you and your wife, Joe, he's not a bad guy. You know what that shows, right? Joe Biden just doesn't give a shit. He's totally and fully dehumanized all the innocent victims in Iraq. He's totally and completely dehumanized all the innocent victims who were tortured at Guantanamo Bay and elsewhere. So they don't count to him. To him, it's like, well, those are the baddies. I've lumped them off in my mind, and they're just, they're the other, they're the baddies, so I don't, I have no sympathy for them. Why would I care? I know Dick Cheney. He's nice to me. He wears a suit and tie. He seems like a gentleman in front of me. I'm sure fucking Goebbels was a gentleman, too. I'm sure Himmler was a gentleman, too. It doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything. You're in the club, Joe. You're in the fucking club. Yeah, the club treats other people in the club kindly. No shit. No fucking shit. You know who they don't treat kindly? Everybody else. All the fucking Americans who are in, in poverty and in debt up to their eyeballs because of college or because of a medical bill. or They don't give a fuck about them. They're not fighting for them even though that's their fucking job. They don't care about all the dead, innocent women and children in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. They don't care about that. And you fell for the head fake. He's a nice, he smiles when he talks to us. He offered me a very cold beverage. It was good. He was so gracious to me. And he told me, he told me a lot of the legal parameters of the office. You know what I'm saying? Nobody violated the law more than Dick Cheney in office. Nobody did. But the difference is, their effective argument is, when we do it, it doesn't count. It doesn't break the law. Why? We're, what do you mean? We're the leaders of the world. We're in the office of the presidency of the United States of America. Law doesn't apply to us. And that's what he passed on to Joe Biden. <laughs> that's what he passed on. Like, yeah, it doesn't really matter. You can do whatever you want, basically. Kill people, torture people. It doesn't matter. It's all good. He's a very kind and gracious man. I love him very much. His approval rating of fucking like 22% was really inspiring to me. Try to go find a video of uh, Bernie Sanders praising Joe Biden. Uh, not Joe Biden, excuse me. Bernie Sanders praising Dick Cheney. You ain't going to find it. And that says something. All right. Let me take a quick break. When we come back, I got more Biden. And then um, I have... The new smear attack against Bernie Sanders. You guys are really going to get a kick out of this one. Don't miss it. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
Beach. All right, everybody. It's on like Donkey Kong, bitch. More from Hansy Uncle Joseph. We're going to give you his thoughts on millennials. So Joe Biden recently spoke about millennials. Um, This is prior to his announcing his presidential campaign. And now that he wants our vote, let's go back and see what he really thinks of us. And so the younger generation now tells me how tough things are. Give me a break. No, no. I have no empathy for it. Give me a break. Because here's the deal, guys. We decided we were going to change the world, and we did. We did. You have no empathy for the younger generation, and you want us to give you a break. Uh, no, you will not be receiving that break. <laughs> oh, shit. No empathy. Well, that's interesting because, um, you know, it was you guys, and you in particular because of your vote, um, you started the illegal offensive Iraq war based on lies, which led to thousands of U.S. soldiers dying, hundreds of thousands of innocent Iraqi civilians dying, and $7 trillion wasted, and oh yeah, by the way, we're still there. War in Afghanistan, same thing. wasn't millennials that started that. We're still there now. The Taliban has control of more territory now than they did when the Afghanistan war started. By any way of, you know, judging that war, it's a failure. It's a total failure. We're bombing seven or eight different countries right this second. There's a shadow war going on in Africa. So you have all these wars where you willy-nilly send my generation to go die, You um, run up the bill for it and and turn it over to the taxpayers. You repeatedly, repeatedly deregulated the economy, which led to massive boom-bust cycles where, oh, my God, everything's doing so well. Oh, my God, everything crashed and it's a disaster. You guys signed away our future with your shitty outsourcing deals, your shitty trade deals like NAFTA and CAFTA and permanent normal trade relations with China. You, um, the, the cost, the price of college has skyrocketed, man, skyrocketed to the point where there's $1.3 trillion worth of student loan debt in this country, 44 million people feeling the pain from that. When back in the day, back in Biden's day, you could have one factory job, not even have a college education, one factory job, and you can, uh, you know, provide for a family of four on that salary. Now, forget it. You need a college degree, and then even when you get the college degree, it's no guarantee that you're going to get a high-paying job or you're going to get uh, enough money to to raise a family. You can't afford houses nowadays. Uh, Are you kidding me? So these guys, let's face it, totally blew up the country, destroyed the country with bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. Worst of all, it was... Their generation, it was the boomers. 
And I actually don't know. Is he part of the silent generation or the boomers? Either way, it was the older generation that allowed money into politics. And then now the corrupting influence of money is honestly, it's at such a high level that it's comical. Like elections are run by corporations and billionaires. And they get whatever they want implemented. There was a Princeton study that looked into this. They get whatever they want implemented, and regular people get next to nothing of what they want. So these guys just totally and utterly destroyed the system and then casually handed it off to us. And then now as they're handing it off to us, they berate us in the process. As you fucked everything up and then you go to hand the system off to us, you're berating us. Yeah, they say it's tough now. Give me a break. You think it's tough now when we're sending you to die in useless, unnecessary, offensive wars? You think it's tough now when you have over a trillion dollars in student loan debt? You think it's tough now when medical uh, bills are the number one cause of bankruptcy in the country? You think it's tough now when wages haven't budged since the 1980s? Ha! You don't know what tough is, said the man who's been in Washington, D.C. his entire adult life. Entire adult life. I, li- listen, man, listen, man, here's why I'm showing you this. The overwhelming majority of my audience, you guys are millennials. You're in my generation, millennials. This is what he thinks of you. There's this weird, um, you know, stereotype, caricature of millennials as like all spoiled, pampered little pricks who are, they're all about their feelings. This is the thing that Bill Maher trots out there all the time. Oh, they're all about their feelings. They don't care about harsh facts. They don't like hearing dissenting voices, which, by the way, is hilarious coming from Bill Maher because he has like a rule against people who, you know, got known online from going on his show. So he made a point of never having me or Jimmy Dore or Jank or even people who, you know, are more likely to, to pat him on the back and tell him he's awesome, like Dave Rubin. Even he, like, no, he's got this weird thing where, but anyway, I, I digress from that point. Bottom line is, these guys berate the millennial generation, as if we're, like, spoiled and pampered. And no, we, even though we're busting our ass and working hard, so many in the millennial generation are, can't afford to do the basic things that our parents did and our parents' parents did because the economy is fundamentally broken. So they break the goddamn thing, and then they berate us as if we're the problem. No, we're not. Sorry that we're on our smartphone. You fucked everything up, and frankly, you're just not that interesting. <laughs> That's harsh, but I kind of mean it. Like, oh, yeah, the younger generation, you're always on your smartphone, huh? That's what you like? You like talking to people who are, like, you know, maybe in other states instantaneously? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that is kind of cool, isn't it? Like, yeah, you can just press buttons and talk to somebody who's, like, maybe all the way across the world. Oh, is that what you like doing? You like, you know, making social connections by using the Internet to your advantage and, you know, um, being plugged in and happy in the process of doing it? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we like doing. <laughs> They'd be right and they scored when they don't even, like, think for a second of, well, hold on now. Maybe they're on to something. No, that's out the door. They're totally married to their own ideas and to their own archaic ways. Now, to be clear, I'm not like them so let me be clear, I'm not talking about all millennials, all people in the silent generation. Obviously, it varies on an individual case-by-case basis. But nothing gets me more mad. There's nothing lazier and dumber than the millennial bashing that oftentimes people in older generations do. 
and they think it's like edgy and they're telling the truth. No, actually, you're just shitting on the same people who you uh, sold their future out for. Like you sold our future out and then you shit on us. Thank you. And we're split. Oh, and and now, uh, now I'm running for office and I'm gonna pretend to be like all cool and hip and I'm gonna try to do shitty cheesy things to make you want to vote for me. How about no? How about we're not going to vote for you? We have our candidate, or I should say candidates, because we don't all agree, but we have a few in mind. Um, and you're certainly not on that list. He really is a son of a bitch, isn't he? He really is. So I've showed you a bunch of old-school Bernie Sanders clips on this show because um, he was always way ahead of his time, and he was getting things correct at a time when nobody was getting it correct. And it's really awesome to go back and see, like, his warning about the Iraq War, among many other things. He was talking about gay rights in the fucking 1990s when nobody was talking about it. Nobody even thought about it. Um, So just always... Tremendous amount of credit to him because he really is a uniquely principled guy, Bernie Sanders is. Well, Joe Biden is the opposite. He's an opportunist, and he will look at whatever the politics of that exact moment are and exploit it. And um, here we have an example of this on the issue of North Korea. Now, I should mention, at the time, going back to the 1990s and into the 2000s, there was this big, there was this sentiment of, hawkishness and tough-on-crime attitude. And Biden was one of the chief architects and pushers of the crime bill, and he gave these speeches about how we should have no empathy for these, you know, these monsters, these immoral, amoral people who've been raised in an environment where they got no love and now they're incapable of giving love. Just these long diatribes of why we've got to be tough on crime and have mandatory minimums even for nonviolent offenses. Well, here is the international version of that. So domestically, he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm tough on crime. I take no shit. This is the, the foreign policy version of that, the international version of that. These are his comments. Listen to this on North Korea. If they develop, and I am on record of this, is four years ago. I agree with the Israeli position on this. If we have evidence that they are building a missile defense, a missile system, an offensive system with a nuclear capacity and they will not negotiate with us, I would support a unilateral strike to take them out. That, to me, is a hell of a lot less risky way to deal with my grandchildren's future than to engage in an overall arms race. That's Joe Biden saying, I'm in favor of an offensive strike against North Korea. That's what he said. And he even has a Freudian slip there. Go back and listen to it. It's really interesting. He says, if they build a missile defense system, a missile, a missile, a missile system, an offensive system, that's what he said. So he starts out by accurately describing it, that if North Korea were to build it, it would be a missile defense system. But he says, no, no, I mean, uh, yeah, no, missile offense system. If they build a missile offense system, I'm in favor of a preemptive strike. So that is calling for an offensive strike on North Korea, 
if they were to build a, a missile system conducive to nuclear weapons. Again, clear violation of international law. It would be a violation of U.S. law, too, because I assume he doesn't mean let's go through the Congress and, and order it the proper way. He means as president, he would do it. This is dangerous, man. Just so you know, just so everybody knows, for the record, our own generals and elements of our deep state have actually admitted this on the record. Because, you know, it's all like the Wall Street Journal opinion page. Sometimes they feel like they can be honest because the crowd agrees with them. So with the generals, they've said, like, oh, they North Korea only wants a weapon for a deterrent. What? That seems like a big deal. What do you mean? Well, yeah, that's why they want a weapon, to make sure that we don't attack them. So in other words, our own government knows it's not like North Korea wants weapons to, like, offensively launch on Nebraska. They don't want that. They want it to prevent us from doing regime change in North Korea, which makes perfect sense when you look at our track record and how we topple governments that disagree with us or break from our corporate stranglehold. Um, so that's why they want it. So, and presumably Joe Biden knows that, or maybe he doesn't know that. But either way, what he's saying is, I will offensively strike. So the reality of the situation is, regardless of the noise around it, he's saying if North Korea wants to build a missile system for defensive purposes, to stop us from doing regime change on them, I would be in favor of bombing that and doing an offensive strike on them and presumably regime change too. Although we don't know about that. Maybe he just means take out the missile defense system, but he's calling for an offensive strike even though they would be building it for defensive purposes. U.S. leaders are like insanely hostile to international law and uh, following rules and being objective in their criteria of when we should use force. It used to be the duh position that only defensive force made sense. That used to be the duh position. And then World War II happened, and it was a reasonable war, obviously, defeating the Nazis. But then post-World War II, all the standards were out the window, and it was just like, well, we'll just offensively attack. Like Vietnam, really? We're supposed to believe that like landless left-wing peasants in Vietnam would suddenly storm the Jersey Shore and try to take over our country if, if we let them build their own government there. But that's the argument that was implied. Like, we got to stop, you know, the spread of communism in Vietnam, because if we don't, next thing you know, shit, man, in Wyoming, it'll be here any minute. So I, I, I really hate these kinds of politicians who are just so nonchalant about force. I mean, just like, what do you mean? Yeah, go bomb it. Go bomb the fucking, uh, you know, the missile system they're building. I don't care. Oh, it's for defense purposes? I don't care. Go offensively strike them. Now, that's a fucking scandal right there. And you're not going to hear the mainstream media talk about this at all. He's saying, I agree with the Israeli position. I will offensively strike North Korea if I think they're building a weapon. That would also, just for the record here, that would be the one for sure way to see civilians die in South Korea. Now, Joe Biden doesn't give a fuck about North Korean civilians, which is why I'm not bringing up North Korean civilians, because obviously we would probably end up killing North, North Korean civilians if we just bombed their missile system, okay? But 
what would happen immediately if you launch an offensive strike on North Korea, they would point their conventional weapons at Seoul, South Korea, and they would go to town. And then you started a giant war because you wanted to be, you know, trigger happy Joe over here and be Mr. Tough Guy Macho Man and take out their, their missile system. Honestly, man, in a lot of ways, he reminds me of Trump. Like, he's just not ready for this position as president. He's not ready for it. He doesn't have, he doesn't have the ability to reason, and he doesn't have the temperament. Like, look at how casually he says it. Like, yeah, what do you mean? I, I just strike there. I just bomb. What? That's how, that's how deeply you think of this? Like, yeah, just do it. Oh, man. <clears throat> Bernie and Tulsi, particularly when it comes to foreign policy, are just leagues ahead of this guy, and it's not even close. All right, now. All right. <clears throat> fake scandal time. It is fake scandal time. You guys are going to get a kick out of this. This is uh, the new scandal against Bernie. So Politico is now um, doing oppo research on Bernie Sanders. Now, they'll pretend like they're not. And, no, what do you mean? We just stumbled across this. No, you didn't. You were looking for it, and you found it. And let me be clear. I think the reason why they're doing this is because there are a lot of – there's, like, an organic opposition movement to Biden where I've seen a lot of lefties on Twitter digging up these old things that Biden said that are really devastating and damning and show how terrible he is with his reason and his judgment and his character. So the establishment's reaction to that is to have some Politico hacks go look for old stuff on Bernie. Well, guess what? With Bernie Sanders, he's so principled and so right about virtually everything he said, it's hard to find old stuff that's questionable. Now, there are a few things where you look at it and you're like, ooh, well, that was ill-advised. Like, for example, he thought early on, like, uh, you know, whether it be in Cuba or elsewhere, that these leftist governments would be successful Um, But I don't think he was able to adequately predict or foresee, number one, the amount of U.S. involvement that tries to undermine and undercut these uh, attempts at genuine left-wing governments, but also the turn that many of these left-wing governments have taken towards authoritarianism. Um, So it is kind of cringy when you see old comments talking about the Soviet Union or Cuba or wherever else, uh, and... But the thing is, Bernie now acknowledges, like, yeah, okay, that was wrong. Like, the Scandinavian model is the way to go, Denmark, Sweden. It's not, it's not some sort of authoritarian communism vision. It's more like a, you know, a social democratic, left libertarian vision that makes sense. Now, having said that, they've already trotted out those old tapes in the previous election of, oh, my God, Bernie in 1970-whatever, you know, praised uh, Castro. Well, now... Here's the new thing they dug up on him. He spoke to kids on an old TV show that he had while he was mayor of Burlington, Vermont. He spoke to children about drugs. This is hilarious. Check it out. 
any of the older kids do you know have some problems with drugs occasionally? No. Yeah. Who wants to talk to me about that one? What about drugs? Is that a problem? I like Coke. Let's see. Do you want to talk about that one? Well, who said they like Coke? Me. All right, you tell me about that I like Coca-Cola. Oh, Coca-Cola. All right, but who knows about cocaine? Anyone ever seen cocaine? Yeah. Hold it one at a time. What about cocaine? Good thing? Bad thing? What? Bad. Bad. Why is it bad? Because it has a bad effect on the body. That's right. Do you know people who take drugs? No. You don't have to tell me who, but I bet you do. Okay. All right. All right. Why, do, why do? Hold it. Why do people take drugs? You know, is that smart? No. They think they're big shots. That's exactly right. They think they're doing something that's very cool. What, in fact, are they doing? Does anyone know what cocaine does to you? Yeah. Well, what is it? That's right. It screws up your mind, and it screws up your body. What about even smoking cigarettes? Who here smokes? Uh, Let me hear, come on, raise your hand. Well, other than your parents, who smoke? You got your smoke ready? I've seen a lot of kids who are 12 and 11 smoking. All right. I kids don't do drugs and don't smoke where's the scandal what's the scandal here i mean i think what they're trying to say is oh my goodness some of the kids around him are even too young for this lesson and don't even know like what drugs are yet i think that's what they're getting at because i look at the kids he spoke to and it looks like some of them are old enough where you can have this conversation with them and some of them are younger than that age where you even expect them to really get what he's talking about but who cares? Who the fuck cares? It's the right. It's a good message either way. Don't do cocaine. Don't smoke cigarettes. So I need you to stop and reflect on what this says about establishment media, elite media. What does this say about them? It says they have nothing. Nothing. Listen, we spoke about it recently. I think that the most clever they've been to this point is the, uh, the Boston bomber question. That was incredibly clever because here's what they realized. When we go after Bernie, it doesn't hurt him. If anything, it might help him. Like his numbers go up every time we try to attack him and we're forthright about it. So then how do we deal with this? How do we take him down when we can't go after him? And the answer they came up with was brilliant. They said, just get him to talk about the few issues where he is out of the mainstream with the American public. Because on 90 to 95% of the issues, Bernie's right in line with the majority of the American people. So just have him pontificate on the few areas where he's not, and it's not, he's not even close to in the majority. So what do they do? They ask him the question, hey, you say you're for felons uh, voting rights. Do you think rapists should have the right to vote? And do you think that uh, the Boston Marathon bombers should have the right to vote? Like, should terrorists have the right to vote? And he basically said yes. <laughs> and... I, I definitely heard him because I, 
regardless of whether or not if you think that's the right position, 76% of Americans disagree with that right now. And if you're going to disagree with 76% of Americans, you better come correct and you better have an ironclad argument that really kind of assuages their fears. Um, and I don't think he sufficiently did that. I think his answer was not persuasive enough for people. Um, if I was running his campaign, I would have tried to have him dodge that question by basically swatting it aside and saying, hey, listen, I think that you're trying to get me with that question. You're trying to get a soundbite out of me. And I think the question is a little ridiculous, and it trivializes an important issue, which is the people I really care about are the nonviolent drug offenders who have been totally disenfranchised when they shouldn't even be in prison in the first place. That's who I care about. I care about them having the ability and the right to vote. I think that's how we should have answered. He didn't answer it like that. But bottom line is, at least that was clever. Like, the attack on Bernie was really clever, and I think it kind of worked a little bit. This is just like, bro, what? Because anybody who really watches that video, they're going to go, oh, that's fine. I don't see a problem here at all. <laughs> now, I think if we're really analyzing this, though, objectively, what they may have been doing here is it's just a headline gotcha. It's just a headline gotcha because the headline in Politico was something like, Bernie Sanders talks to young kids about cocaine. And when I first saw the headline, I was thinking like, oh, shit. Did Bernie tell these kids that drugs are not all that bad? It's like a freedom situation? Because that, that was when I read the headline, that was my initial reaction. Like, shit, did they catch Bernie saying in like the 1970s or 80s or whatever? That like, hey, listen, drugs are a personal choice and it's all about freedom. And you have the right to put in your body what you want to put in your body. Because, by the way, that's the correct response. But... That's not something you tell young kids. That's obvious. We all don't want to go up to kids and be like, crystal meth? Maybe, dog. No, 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 no. You don't want to do that. That's obvious you don't want to do that. But the headline made me go, oh, did Bernie say, like, this is a freedom thing and he's telling kids that? So the headline may have been the only attack, and they were expecting people to not listen to the clip and not go past the headline. That's very possible, and that's some next-level chess-type shit. But I don't know if that's what they were doing. Because certainly when people watch the clip, like I just showed you here, they're going to go, there's nothing wrong with this at all. In fact, it's responsible, if anything. So I don't know what they were trying to do necessarily, but I do know that they don't have much on Bernie, which is why they have to go to stuff like this. And I will say this. You guys know me. I'm not a believer in throwing the first punch. I'm just not. But I'm a deep believer in counterpunching. Huge, huge believer in counterpunching. So... If establishment media is going to come after you like this, you got to hit him back 10 times as hard with oppo on their beloved candidate. So whether it's Booty Judge, whether it's, um, you know, Kamala, Biden, Beto, all of them. I hope Bernie's team has some awesome oppo research because I don't want to let these motherfuckers get away with anything, dog. I want them to feel our wrath if they come after the king. Because if you come after the king, you better come correct. All right, next. So Cory Booker responded to the Bernie Sanders question about felons voting rights. Um, let's see how he dealt with this. 
out in your Justice for All plan, you favor, you've long worked on justice, uh, uh, criminal justice issues, you want to give convicted felons the right to vote. As I'm sure you know, Senator Sanders has said they should not only have the right to vote when they're released from prison, they should have that right while they're incarcerated. Do you agree with him? I, I just think that that is a frustrating uh, debate that we seem to now be having. As a guy who lives in an inner city black community and knows that there are millions of Americans that are being arrested and convicted and should never be there in the first, and not only lose their right to vote, but they lose their liberty, let's get this conversation back to where it is right now. Our prison population in this country has gone up 500% since 1980 alone. We locked up more people for marijuana in 2017 than all the violent crimes combined. And so here we have a nation that takes away people's liberty and their right to vote for doing things that two of the last three presidents admitted to doing. So if Bernie Sanders wants to get into a bomb in the conversation about whether Dylan Roof and the marathon bomber should have the right to vote, my focus is liberating black and brown people and low-income people from prison because we have a system in America, as Brian Stevenson says, it treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. My focus is tearing down the system of mass incarceration so that we don't even have to have the debate about people's voting rights because they're not going to prison in the first place. People that don't belong there are there, and I'm going to stop that as president. Fuck. God damn it. Ah, he did it. He did the right answer. He did the right answer. I, I, you know, I should stop giving my advice on air to candidates. I'm not saying he, he uh, got that from me, because honestly, a lot of strategists could have dissected that situation and came to the right conclusion. But um, that's the advice I've been given, everybody. Basically, you have to swap the question aside and say, listen, that's a gotcha question. That's a smear question. That's the whole point of asking that question. Here's who I'm really concerned about. All these nonviolent drug offenders who've been totally disenfranchised and they shouldn't have even been locked up in the first place. Two of the last three presidents admitted to doing these drugs. And some people lose their voting rights and lose their freedom and their liberty as a result of this. This is crazy. No, I care about them and I want them to have the right to vote. That's the right answer, man. That's the right answer that will go over politically very well. And I love all my fellow uh, political commentators on the left here on YouTube and elsewhere, but um, I think that a lot of them missed, the, missed it on this one because it doesn't matter what you think, what I think, you know, who we're holding to, like, the standard of objectively most leftist. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is we're trying to win an election. And in an election you got to go to where the people are, okay? It's not about, yes, Bernie Sanders is uniquely principled in that he'll always tell you exactly what he thinks. And, and perhaps in 50 years from now, we'll look back and say Bernie was prescient and, and he was ahead of the times talking about prisoners having the right to vote. But right now, it is a fact that that answer hurt him. It definitely hurt him. And uh, Cory Booker gave an answer here that's way more powerful. And, bro, he slipped in Dylan Roof there. Oh, God damn, bro. <laughs> Oh, shit. Oh, that is a fucking gut punch to Bernie. Holy shit. As Bernie's, like, busting ass in the South and elsewhere, trying to do well in these predominantly African-American Democratic voting states where he didn't do well last time in 2016. He's down there. He's giving rallies. He's having meetings. He's, he's doing everything he can in order to win. And then in one fell swoop, Cory Booker comes out here and is like... All right, dog, you want to give Dylan Roof the right to vote? Whatever. I'm over here talking about nonviolent offenders, all right? Uh, uh, look, my job is to be honest with you guys, and my job is to keep it real. And the reality of the situation is, 
this was a devastating answer, and it was a solid answer, and it politically works, bro. It politically will work. Now, the upside is Cory Booker's polling at negative 12%, and roughly four people have seen this interview of him. <laughs> and, and you guys are – he's seeing the interview, but then you're hearing the context of it where I think uh, this was definitely a planned thing in Cory Booker's campaign that he delivered well. Like, it looks like it's off the cuff, like, all right, bro, you want Dylan Roof to vote? Whatever. Like, it looks like he's just saying it and he just came up with it. That's him and, like, eight strategists sitting in a, in a meeting room and going, let's capitalize on this shit. How are we going to do it? And they did. They did. You know, who knows how big of a bump it's going to give them. But um, my advice to Bernie Sanders and his team, get off this fucking topic. And if you're forced to talk about this topic again, say what I just said. Say what Cory Booker just said. Listen, the question is a gotcha question. I'm not in a gotcha mood today. Bottom line is, I want, I care most about these nonviolent offenders. And then if they try to push you on it, and, and Bernie is incapable of lying, so he can't be like, no, I don't support that. But you can still deflect. If it's a question that shouldn't be asked in the first place, you're allowed to obfuscate and deflect. So if you want to obfuscate and just plant a seed, say to people, hey, man, listen, if the Boston Marathon bomber gets cancer, should he, be able, should he get treatment? If he breaks his leg in prison, should we leave him there and just let, his, let him bleed out on the floor, or should we give medical attention? And then presumably whoever's asking the question will say, well, yeah, we should give care. And then Bernie can go, aha, so look at this. You want to give the Boston Marathon bomber care. How crazy is that? And then it's a way of getting to the core of what Bernie's point really is and what his position really is without just saying it. You don't want to just say it when 76% of Americans disagree with you. You're not going to win that fight. You're not going to swing the polls to fucking be majority with you in, you know, one soundbite. Not going to happen. Now, I admire Bernie for being so upfront and honest that he, like, is willing to try to shoulder that burden. But we're not playing checkers anymore, bro. You're the fucking front runner. It's time to play some chess. 90 to 95% of the time, your brutal honesty and upfront nature helps you because you're with the American people on those issues. When you're not, it hurts. So I'm just saying, I'm here to be honest with you guys. I'm not here to come out here and play defense for Bernie and say every single thing he's ever said is right and it's politically genius. No, it's possible that sometimes his uh, sense of what's going to go over well politically isn't correct. Did you know that Bernie wrote not bad after that answer on this issue? And in the op-ed, he says, I believe in the right to vote, even for people like Paul Manafort and, you know, whatever, one of the other criminals, Michael Flynn. So he took some criminals from the Trump administration and said, I believe in the right to vote, even for them. Bro, no, stop. Chill, chill. (laughs) No, no, no. Pump your brakes, bro. Pump your brakes. This is not the direction to go, dog. This is not the direction to go. So anyway, um... I don't know how much damage is done, because <clears throat> at least Bernie, being Bernie, now he's out there still focused on all the issues. Stick to your bread and butter, dog, because your bread and butter gets everybody in the country on your side, and that's what we want. Judging of some booties. 
<clears throat> so mainstream media is seriously pushing Mayor Pete Booty Judge and uh, trying to make him a thing. And um, listen, what I'm about to show you, this to me is just irrefutable proof that the media has their favorites and they will push them relentlessly and the media has the ones they hate and they will smear them relentlessly. Now, we already know who they're smearing. Okay, it's clear. On a lower level, because he barely gets any press attention at all, but on a lower level, it's Andrew Yang, because Andrew Yang, um, you know, he went on Joe Rogan's show, and then he picked up some right-wing followers, and then on some, like, former Trump Reddits or something, people have flipped to Andrew Yang because they think Trump didn't deliver. They're right that Trump didn't deliver, by the way. But they like the UBI and stuff, and so now he's accused of being, like, a white nationalist, even though he's a nerdy Asian dude. Pretty funny if you think about it. But it's a smear that they're seriously running with. Okay. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard is another one who smeared relentlessly, and she smeared relentlessly very simply because she appears to be the most dedicated and the most devoted to ending regime change wars. And, uh, you know, the Pentagon's in favor of those regime change wars, the CIA's in favor of those regime change wars, the government, the executive branch is in favor of those regime change wars, the media's in favor of them. So they just smear her relentlessly. It's nonstop. They accuse her of loving all these dictators around the world, even though 73% of the dictatorships around the world are backed by the United States. Our government officially backs 73%. That doesn't make, they never talk about that in the context of Saudi Arabia. Oh, my God, we gave them a $100 billion weapons deal? Why are we propping up a dictator? They never say that. But Tulsi meets with Assad to try to get, you know, some sort of peace and to stop the rush towards war. Suddenly, oh, my God, she's in favor of atrocities and genocide, and she's a dictator lover, even though, no, she was doing diplomacy. You want to talk to the people who are your enemies, so we don't escalate and end up going to war. But no, they act like, oh my God, she loves dictators and she loves genocide and she's a, she's, uh, is a terrible person. Nonsense. It's all smears. Now, in the case of Bernie, he's you know public enemy number one to the mainstream media. They cannot stop going after him in the hackiest of hacky ways. We've seen a million articles on this, trying to, uh, is he a sexual assaulter? Oh my God. He spoke to kids in the 1980s about not doing drugs, but some of the kids were really young. As if that's like a bad thing. Jesus Christ, it's so stupid. Well, here is the insufferable angle of when they try to push candidates on you. Look. First Family, Time Magazine. It says, First Family, the unlikely and unprecedented campaign of Mayor Pete Buttigieg. And notice, it's him and his husband there. Um, Now, why? Like, why is it that they're giving him this positive coverage. Now, I haven't made my case yet. Let me show you the next magazine cover. How about Pete? Perhaps all the Democrats need to win the presidency is a Rust Belt millennial who's gay and speaks Norwegian and has never governed anything but the fourth largest city in Indiana. Mm, yeah. He's gay and he speaks multiple languages. Yeah. Look at his eyes. They try to make him look like as good as they possibly could with like, look, he's a bright-eyed youngster who wants to fight for the future of the country. Yes! Look at those eyes. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Here he is. And then my personal favorite. This, what was this in? Was this Vogue? I don't remember. It's in some other, you know, mainstream magazine. A policy wonk with sex appeal. Vogue's booty judge photo shoot shows blandness can sizzle. Oh, please. Come on, dude. Come on. 
on, dog. Who falls for this shit? Blandness by definition can't sizzle. It's bland. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two is they called him a policy wonk with sex appeal when he has repeatedly stated on the campaign trail he's anti-policy. He said, me, bro? Listen, I think the Democrats are too, too mired in policy details. What we really need to do is connect with the American people on a values level, bro. He honestly sounds like me when I was in like high school trying to bullshit my way through a presentation. Like, you know, the professor here wants me to give the details of what my, you know, um, assignment here was. But the reality is I'm more of a talk about the broad, generalized reality of the situation kind of dude. You know what I'm saying? That's where I'm at, dog. Like, I'm just trying to give you the broad, general, vague shit that means I don't have to do any of the actual work. That's Pete Booty Judge. That's who he is. That's who he is. He said it, he said it to Vice. You know, policy. We just got to take a backseat to values. What? Policy takes a backseat to values. But we've been hearing our entire lives from the Democrats and I'm for good things and against bad things. I'm for good people and against bad people. Yes. And we're all supposed to go, oh, oh, he wants good stuff to happen. I'm with him. I, too, enjoy good stuff. (laughs) They've used the values dodge to deflect from the fact that they're not going to do dick for us on policy. They're not going to be ambitious. They're not going to fight for Medicare for all. They're not going to fight for free college. They're not going to fight for a living wage. They're not going to fight to end the wars. They're not going to fight to legalize marijuana. Because if they did, if they, if they were going to do those things, they put themselves on the record and be, here's what I'm aiming for. I will stop at nothing to get it. He wants that vagueness there so that when he doesn't do dick, he can still pretend like he won. He can still pretend like he's a hero. Me? I did minor tweaks around the edges, but I'm a transformative president. Why? Because I'm gay and I speak multiple languages. Listen, I, the fact, does token representation matter? It does. And it does because I, I actually believe that we're all equal. So, you know, in a world that made sense, there would at least be um, parity with, okay, you know, whatever, 16% of the population roughly is African-American. Well, 16% of our presidents then should roughly be African-American. Half the population or a little more is female. Well, maybe half our presidents should be female because it just shows parity. It shows that there actually is, like, equal opportunity. Now, equal outcome is not going to be perfect, and that's fine. It doesn't have to be perfect. But, yeah, there should be some female president, some gay president, some straight president. Like, that's – I'm – I think everybody is equal, so I will treat everybody equally. I will never rule anybody out because of their fucking gender or their, or their sexual orientation. However, what they're doing here is they're putting it front and center in order to pretend like that in and of itself equals progressive credentials. And it does not. If just the identity was enough, then in an election between Sarah Palin and Bernie Sanders, you would have had to vote for Sarah Palin because, hey, she's a woman. And the identity overrides policy, right? So she's a woman. So vote for her, first woman president over Bernie Sanders, the guy who's actually going to bring us real change. See, the reality is they deflect from the policy by focusing on the identity. And that's why they love Pete Judge. That's why they love him. Because he gives them symbolic victories in the same way Obama gave them symbolic victories. What do you mean? What do you mean? We have a young black guy who's president. What do you mean? Okay, fine, you didn't get Medicare for all. Okay, fine, you didn't get free college. Okay, fine, you didn't get money out of pocket. Okay, fine, you didn't get a living wage. Okay, fine, he expanded our wars. But we, it's a young black guy. So they can use that as a shield to deflect substantive left criticism. 
they suddenly get to turn around and go, you're criticizing the first black president? But he's the first black president. How, you're criticizing him. I guess you agree with the far-right racists who are against him. They're criticizing him. You're criticizing him. What do you want me to say? I mean, he brought change. He's the first black president. That's change by definition. Same thing with Pete Booty Judge. Are you criticizing? He's the first gay president. Are you homophobic? Why are you criticizing him? I don't understand. What do you, that's change. He's change. We're bringing about change. It gives them the symbolic victories where they could check the boxes. And I always told you. What did I always tell you? For years now I've been saying this. Corporate America, they are socially liberal. Why? Because they know black people, gay people, women, they all buy products too. They're all part of society too. They don't want to piss off giant swaths of the country. So they're inclusive. And that's good. That, don't get me wrong, that's a positive thing. I'd rather have a corporate America that's inclusive than a corporate America that's totally like fucking, you know, white supremacist, anti-woman, misogynist, all that stuff, homophobic. That's a good thing. But that's where it stops. That's it. They don't, it's not like they're like, oh, okay, we, uh, we love everybody equally, and we love paying everybody a living wage and making sure they can raise a family on the income they make. They don't say that part. <laughs> that part is go fuck yourself. We're going to pay as little as possible. But for the symbolic change, oh, they're all in on that which is why you've seen this giant shift in the Democratic Party where they, they have no problem being as socially liberal as you would want, you know? But when it comes to economic change, when it comes to economic leftism, nowhere to be found because they're going to defend the status quo. And that's the media too. They love the token change. They love the being socially liberal, but economically they're deeply in favor of the status quo. Ask Pete Buttigieg. He gives them the veneer, the facade, of change while offering no substantive change and keeping the status quo going as is. That's why he gets endless positive coverage. Now, having said all that, we'll see how this impacts the race because we might be at a time now where positive media coverage, not only does it not help you, it hurts you. I'm serious about that. Chris Christie was on the cover of Time Magazine. And they called him the boss. Uh, Marco Rubio was on the cover of Time Magazine and they called him the Republican savior. And the list goes on and on of the candidates who've gotten these glowing uh, covers and then they tank. Beto O'Rourke, just on Vanity Fair. I'm just born to be in it, man. That doesn't even mean anything. What are you saying? He had this big Vanity Fair thing, big launch, and shit the bed. Went nowhere. So it's possible that the more the media puffs you up, the worse off you are. It's yet to be seen, but we'll find out because I'm very curious to see if that dynamic is rock solid. I think it's a little more wishy-washy now. So in other words, sometimes if the media shits on you, it helps you. Sometimes if the media shits on you, it hurts you. Sometimes if the media shits on you uh, or puffs you up, it helps. Sometimes it hurts. I think it depends on more the content of the argument more than anything. Um, But they made their mind up, and we know who they like. They like Biden. They like uh, Booty Judge. They like Kamala. They like Beto. And uh, they're going to spoon feed you them nonstop, and they will continue to attack Bernie, Tulsi, Yang, and... Warren half the time. Warren, they're uh, ambivalent on. They're indifferent. It's like 50-50 on Warren. But that's uh, what's happening now. All right, next. 
So Tap Jaker and Amy Cloudboot Jar had honestly one of the worst segments I've seen in cable news history. <laughs> That's not an exaggeration. I really, really, really hated this conversation. Now, at first when you see it, you might say, I don't know why, why does Kyle hate it so much. I'm going to explain it. Don't worry. As soon as we come back from this clip, I'm going to explain it. Uh, the questions are terrible, and her answers are just as bad, if not worse. And they just end up totally disconnected from the American people and what's really happening. So let's take a look, and then I'll break it down. I want to begin with 2020 presidential candidate and Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar joining me now from her home state of Minnesota. Uh, Senator Klobuchar, let's, let's start with the strong economic news out on Friday. The economy added more than a quarter million jobs, better than economists expected. Unemployment is at its lowest level in almost 50 years. Wages grew faster than prices did. Do you give President Trump the credit? I give our workers and our businesses the credit, Jake. Uh, when you're out there across the country, you see people working harder and harder every day, and this has meant that we are, our businesses are strong and we're selling American goods. That being said, a lot of people aren't sharing in this prosperity because of the cost, the cost of college, the cost of health care, uh, the fact that the president had promised that he would bring down the prices of their prescription drugs, and that just hasn't happened. So when you get out there and you see the energy out there and the concern, Talk to farmers who are trying to sell their soybeans. Uh, there is people out there uh, that are not sharing in this economic prosperity, and it's not fair, and it's not the American way. Uh, so while we attribute a lot of this to our workers and to our businesses, we know we can do better as a country. Unemployment is the lowest it's been since I was nine months old. You're really not going to get President Trump any credit for that in terms of his tax cuts or deregulation or anything he's done? Uh, you know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about when we were in that downturn and President Obama came into office and he had to deal with that with the Congress uh, to try to, one, right the financial industry and then, two, uh, get us on the road to recovery. And I remember that the Republicans were giving him grief uh, when he took any credit for that. So I think that we have had policies in place, starting with President Obama, that have aided that recovery. But what I believe is that we should be governing from opportunity and not chaos. And my problem with uh, President Trump, and I think the problem you're seeing from the citizens of this country when you mention those numbers and what's happening is they see chaos every day. They wake up in the morning and they see a mean tweet um, or they see some inconsistent policy uh, that causes chaos during the day. They want to have a leader that their kids can look up to. Oh, my God, I hate you both so much, and you both suck at this. Amy Cloudboot Jar, feeling like she has nowhere to go with that, does the old decorum tap dance. Why can't we have a president who's a serious person? Yes. Are you serious? Listen, you think Americans didn't know when they voted for him? You think they didn't know? You think they thought, like, the reason we like this guy is because he has decorum and civility. No, they didn't care. They saw he had a lack of it, and they were like, okay, that's fine. We don't care. Maybe, just maybe, they don't prioritize that. Now, okay, let's get into the specifics here. The question from Jake Tapper is horrendous. The question from D Jake Tapper is, well, according to all of the, uh, you know, the metrics, that I'm told to use to judge the economy by the richest 
people in the country who are the most out of touch. We're doing wonderful. Unemployment is low. The stock market is up. I mean, what? How can, how can anybody be against it? Are you against it? How can anybody be against it? Oh, my God, Jake. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Now, if Amy Klobuchar didn't objectively suck at this, she could have absolutely obliterated that because that's a softball down the center of the plate. And, you know, I hope Bernie, I hope Tulsi, I hope anybody listening right now, I hope that this gets to them because you cannot, you cannot buy into the premise of what they're saying. The premise of what they're saying is, what do you mean? The economy is wonderful. End of discussion. That's it. It's over. Economy's great. That's it. So how do you respond to that? You say, no, it's not. It's not. It's not even close to great. 78% of the American people are still living paycheck to paycheck. 50% of wage earners in this country make $30,000 a year or less. 44 million Americans don't even have health insurance. Also, 44 million Americans have $1.3 trillion in student loan debt. 40% of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency. Now, even on their own grounds, because it's a fair response to say, well, Kyle, that doesn't get to exactly what they said. Okay, well, let's address exactly what they said. They keep bringing up the unemployment rate. Oh, it's the lowest Donald Trump, when he wasn't president, he would always use an unemployment rate that was more accurate, and it reflected the state of our economy much more. So there's the official unemployment rate, and then there's other versions of the unemployment rate, and there's this version called the U6 unemployment rate. So what the U6 includes is workers who are part-time for purely economic reasons, so in other words, people who want to work full-time, but they can't find a full-time job. So they are counted as underemployed in the U6 analysis, and that is more accurate because that is true. If you're working part-time, you want to work full-time, you're what's called underemployed. Okay? And then also, it includes people who have given up. So the way that they do the official unemployment rate is, okay, if you've given up on trying to find a job, I'm going to count you. Wait, what? So in other words, somebody could look for a year and a half or two years or three years, and they don't find anything, and they're like, all right, fuck it, I give up. <laughs> and according to the official unemployment rate, what do you mean? They're, they don't even count. They're not unemployed. They're literally unemployed. Like, that's literally what they are. They're unemployed. Just because they've been unemployed for a while doesn't mean they don't count anymore. What, do you erase them from existence? Yes, that's what they do in the original official unemployment rate. So you ready for this? What's the U6 unemployment rate in this country? 7.3. 7.3% of the country is actually unemployed or underemployed. So even with their own standards, they're wrong. As it, oh, the economy's so great, almost one out of ten people don't have a job or are underemployed. The economy's wonderful, it's doing so great. That's just not true. You know what's doing well? The stock market. You know what's doing well? Corporate profits. You know what's doing well? The billionaires. They're doing well. And it's just that the metric that we use to measure how well our country is doing, the yardstick is incorrect. This, Andrew Yang talks about this all the time, this credit. He's like, this doesn't give you an accurate reflection. How can it be? Oh, the economy's so well, which implies everybody's doing so great, then why is it that depression is at an all-time high? Why is it that opioid abuse is at an all-time high? Right? These are very basic, simple questions that one would ask. If everything's so great, then why are all these other problems popping up? And why are you ignoring from the analysis that 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck? 
because the way that they measure it is deeply, deeply, deeply flawed. It doesn't give you an accurate picture of how everybody's doing it, of how everybody's doing. So um, if you're asked this question and you're a Democratic candidate, you better know how to respond. Because if you don't, you're done. How are you going to connect with the American people? If Jake Tapper says, the economy is perfect, it's so great, and your response is, yeah, but Trump does mean tweets. You expect to win an election with that. No, 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 you're beyond embarrassing. Drop out. You should have dropped out yesterday. You should have dropped out the day before yesterday. You got to stop. This is sad. I've never seen anything this sad in my life. No, your reaction has to be, are you kidding me? The economy's not great. The economy is doing terrible. And here's why. And you break it down like I just broke it down for everybody. So hopefully that helps. Bernie, Tulsi, I hope you're watching. And now you know how to respond. Because you're going to get this question. This question is going to come up in the debate. And you better have a great response to it. So Seth Moulton is one of the irrelevant centrist Democrats running for president. He's polling at about negative 12 percent. And he was asked about health care recently, and his answer certainly did not help his chances. Well, I think too far to the left is forcing everybody onto a government system that, you know, once you start asking, I understand the sort of like top line polling, you know, um, it sounds good. As soon as I start having this conversation with voters and listening to them and what they really want, they start to realize, yeah, we could have a better system. We could have some competition in the system. Obamacare with a public option that competes against private plans would probably be better for everyone. So I just think it makes more sense, and I think that's what voters want at the end of the the day. They want better health care. They want coverage for preexisting conditions, but they also want an American system that makes sense. That fake-ass smile at the end really creeped me out. Okay, um, he said that's what voters want, but they don't. This is empirically measured. You don't get to say that and just ignore the reality. I'm so tired of, like, it's one thing to disagree on the substance, but you acknowledge the facts. It's a totally separate thing and totally unacceptable to disagree on the facts. So in other words, if he said, okay, okay, I know, I know, Medicare for All is wildly popular, but here's why I disagree with him. That's one thing. He didn't do that. He made it seem like that's what voters want. No, you just made that up. Voters do not want Obamacare with a public option. You just made that up. There's no data, no polling anywhere that says that at all. You made it up. In fact, Obamacare polls around 50%. Sometimes it's a little over 50, sometimes it's under 50. Why? It's a fucking mealy mouth, neoliberal, technocratic tweak around the edge. It keeps the for-profit health insurance companies intact, and they're the main problem in our system. They have actual debt panels. And it says, okay, you may, you remain in control, and we'll just make some tweaks around the edges. You've got to cover people with pre-existing conditions. You've got to allow kids on, until, on their parents' rolls until they're 26. You've got to spend a certain percentage on actual health care and not on overhead costs. Um, you know, we expand Medicaid a little bit. We have the individual mandate and make you, uh, you know, go get private health insurance. 
but people are paying an arm and a leg, and you still have shitty co-pays and deductibles and premiums, and people don't like it, bro. They don't like the system. They don't like the system. Your minor tweaks, and by the way, when you go to the Republicans with, here's my idea, Obamacare plus a public option, you know what the Republicans are going to do? I got an idea. Go fuck yourself. How about that? Go fuck yourself. So you started the negotiation by meeting them halfway already. And their response is going to be, no. Let's go backwards. Let's get rid of all government in the healthcare system and have a totally laissez-faire, free market, unfettered system and wild, wild west and dog-eat-dog world and race to the bottom. That's their response. So if they're going to react like that, well, then why don't you say, I want an NHS here. I want public funding to public institutions. I want fully socialized medicine. And here's why I want it. It's better. It's the best. Studies show it. It's been proven. The U.K. system, according to some studies, is the best in the world. That's what I want, and I'm not budging. Oh, you're not going to vote for it? Fine. I'm going to hold my caucus, and we're going to beat you. We're going to get a supermajority. We're going to win on this message, and then we're just going to get it implemented. We don't need any of your votes. You know how many votes there were for Obamacare when it got passed? Zero. So you tell the Republicans, oh, I don't give a fuck if none of you vote for it. I'm going to fight for what I know the right position is. And then, in the worst-case scenario, you compromise to Medicare for All, public funding of private institutions. So fully tax-funded for private institutions. But you had to start the negotiation by saying NHS, public funding of public institutions. He didn't do that. He's up front. He's saying, I'm going to concede, I'm going to give away, and I'm going to pretend like this is what Americans want. They do not want this, dude. 70% of the country wants Medicare for all. Even 51% of Republicans want Medicare for all. And by the way, I'm done with all these candidates who act like there aren't other developed countries in the world who have this figured out. Like, you don't get to act like, well, what we need is to improve it and get it better, and this is what voters want. No, 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 Are you going to acknowledge that France exists and they have a system that kicks our ass? Are you going to acknowledge that Canada exists and they have a system that kicks our ass? Are you going to acknowledge that the U.K. exists and they have a system that kicks our ass? Are you going to acknowledge that Australia exists and they have a system that kicks our ass? Because I'm going to make you. You're going to acknowledge that. I'm tired of this American-centric bullshit of, like, there's no evidence anywhere else in the world that counts and matters in our analysis. Yes, there is, and there's an argument that it's all that matters. That's it. That's all that matters because it's, it's the roadmap. It's been laid out for us. They act like we haven't had the experiments already with these systems implemented for decades. I, um, go away. Go away, you fake-ass perfectly combed hair, fake-ass smile, weaselly little loser who's going to get 2%. This is what you're going to run on, and you think you're going to win in goddamn 2020? Oh, I have a perfect smile, and I want to compromise on stuff. Vote for me. Do they make these fuckers in a, in a lab or something? Because that's what it looks like. That's what it appears like. I need you to stop. I need you to stop before you give me some sort of massive health condition from simply acknowledging your existence and looking at, at you talk. God damn it. It gives me an aneurysm. It, ugh. I hate it. Final story of the day. 
Rokana laid out an awesome new litmus test for 2020 uh, Democratic candidates. Take a look. He says, here's a basic test for Democratic candidates in the 2020 primary. Will you criticize Trump's intervention in Venezuela and pledge to do no more unconstitutional wars and entanglements? Listen, Barney the other day released a great, like, basically a test for Democratic candidates and for Trump. And it basically said, you have to agree to do no more shitty trade deals, to, um, you know, renegotiate the shitty ones we have, to not give any more contracts to companies that outsource American jobs. It was just a great list of things that everybody should do in order to fight back uh, against outsourcing and fight back against the destruction of the working class in this country. And, you know, we covered it, and it kind of blew up a little bit online, and people were talking about it. This is the next thing that the Bernie Sanders campaign should release. You know, here's a test. Will you pledge to do no more unconstitutional offensive wars? No more unconstitutional offensive, also entanglements, as he says, which to me, that means like, you know, airstrikes, drone strikes, stuff like that. So in other words, you can't just willy-nilly go into more countries and start doing this stuff. You have to pledge to do no more unconstitutional wars and pledge to roll back the ones we're currently in. I think you should definitely do that. And if you make that a centerpiece, that'll go a long way. And also what you need to do is say, will you pledge to cut back on our offensive wars and reinvest at home? So rebuild our infrastructure with the money that we save from not going to a zillion offensive wars. This should be front and center, and Bernie should release a similar thing like he did with trade on this issue. And if Bernie doesn't do it, Tulsi should do it. Because now, on this issue, we've gotten to a point where the time has come. Everybody's ready for it. It's time to get out of these terrible offensive wars we're in, and it's time to not do any more. It's time to roll it back. At a time when Trump is taking us in the wrong direction, look what he's doing in Venezuela, and look at what they're trying to do in Iran. In Iran, they're trying to topple the economy by forcing their oil exports to zero. And when you topple the economy, the government implodes. So they're trying to do regime change in multiple more countries now. We're still in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they're trying to do it in more countries. So it's about damn time we had candidates who were principled and on the other side of this and fighting for that position. All right, guys and gals. I love y'all, baby. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Lovely day here in New York. A lovely day. Lovely day. Love the day. That's my song right there. Anyway, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Peace, everybody.